I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read Mark chapter 2, 1 through 17, as we continue this series in the book of Mark. God, thank you so much for this morning, and uh, we do pray this morning that we would uh, see you as the ultimate healer that we need, the ultimate healer of our very soul. Um, Father, thank you that uh, you not only are king, but you are the healing king. Um, God, as we open your word this morning, I pray that it would continue to uh, transform us, that we would continue to uh, build our life on the sure anchor of your word to us. God, we thank you for your scriptures and for how they are that anchor we need in the turbulent life we live in. And so, Lord, um, would we continue to uh, see our need um, to be in your word and to be guided and instructed by it. And so, Lord, guide us this morning. Help us each to grow a little bit closer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we go ahead and stand? Um, And Mark chapter 2 should be behind us on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Uh, We're going to read 1 through 17 together. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the mat the man on his mat, right down in the front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus returned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. Then Jesus went out to the lakeshore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his house, to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law saw who were eating, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come not to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. This is God's word. You can have a seat. 
So this morning, we're going to look at the idea that Jesus is our king who heals. And before we, we get into this story, uh, it's one of my favorites uh, that we just read. I want us to, to engage with the story a little more by, by thinking about a question. In our normal day-to-day life, what do we believe that if we attain it, we will be at rest? We will be content. We will be saved, really. Is there something, and maybe we're not even aware of it, as we go throughout our normal days, that we really have started to believe, if I can just attain this thing, everything's going to be okay. Now, it may sound silly, because you're like, well, well, I know that if I just attain something small, it's not going to make everything okay in my life. But actually, I think this is an easy trap we can all fall into. Let me give you a couple examples. Maybe for us, uh, the idea of a career or a job fits this, this uh, category. So, without realizing it, all of your hope, all of your expectation, all of your future is in the hands of you finding or creating the right job or the right career. And if I can only finally nail it and get into this role, then everything is going to be okay. Has anyone ever wrestled with that? Maybe for some of us, it's not so much job and career, but maybe it's family. If I can only have my marriage fit exactly what I thought it should be and look like. Um, As I said to my wife when we were engaged, I thought you were supposed to make my life easier. I I literally said that. Maybe, Maybe it's relationships with your kids, and so if I can just have kids who obey and smile at me and love me and respect me and, and never disobey and, and uh, always seem to care about what I have to say, who look good around other people in public, so therefore I look good. Maybe we put our hopes in our kids that they're going to act a certain way. And if they will, then everything's going to be okay. Maybe for some of us, it's living out certain desires, certain urges that we have that we feel like we can't fully express, fully live out, and it's frustrating. And we wish we could. And our our goal in life is to figure out ways to express ourselves, to live out these urges, these cravings. And if we can only start to do that, then everything is going to be okay. For me, uh, the idea of being significant, famous in ministry or other venues has always been something that has plagued me. And I think, man, if I can just 
become really well known, everything will be okay. Not just some things, everything. Now, there's nothing wrong with some of these things that innately that I've talked about. Having a good job, uh, having a healthy marriage, having kids who actually obey us and care about what we have to say. These are not bad things. Living out certain desires that you have for life, certain interests, certain things that you want to fulfill, that's not a terrible thing. Wanting to impact other people in ministry and help them go closer to Jesus, that's not a bad thing. The problem is when these things become absolutely central in our life. When these things start to define us, start to take hold of us, we start to think, essentially, that something in the world can satisfy us and fulfill us and heal us in an ultimate way. And it begins to define everything else. And if we don't have this, then life is worthless. It's not worth living. Thankfully, Jesus, as we see in this story and many other places in Scripture, he doesn't allow these desires that we have in the world to ultimately satisfy us. I've never met someone, I've never met a Christian, who has said that something in the world has ultimately and never failed them, satisfied them for all time, every day, every moment. I've never met someone who's discovered something in life that always works out and never disappoints them or leaves them empty. I just, it's just, it's just I've never met someone who's experienced that. Because what we're going to find this morning is it's not just that our hearts need to be satisfied with things of the world. It's that our hearts actually need to be healed. In fact, uh, one of the symptoms of a heart that's unhealthy that we're going to see is that you put all of your desire for satisfaction and fulfillment in the world around us that was actually not designed to fulfill us in those ways. So rather than be a healthy indicator, it's actually a sign of of things not being healthy with us. This morning, we're going to see three primary things. That unhealthy hearts attach to something in the world for satisfaction and healing. That's what they do, no matter who you are. If your heart's in an unhealthy place, it looks to something in the world to attach to for ultimate satisfaction and healing. Everyone does it. We're going to then see how to detach from this, how to detach from the world. And lastly, how to attach ourselves to Jesus Christ himself for satisfaction and for healing. So let's reread Mark 1 through 4 as we look at unhealthy hearts that are attaching to something in the world for satisfaction and healing. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. 
And seeing their faith, Jesus said to them, to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. So in the context of this story, the word, this was early in Jesus' ministry. And the word was starting to get out in that part of the world that this miracle worker was on the scene. People didn't fully understand what was going on with him yet, uh, but the word was starting to spread. And one of the primary things that was starting to spread about him is this idea that he was a, a healer. In fact, before this, you see him healing other people in different scenarios, and it was causing quite a stir. I imagine that there were many, many people who, who thought, wow, the, this doctor, this physician, this medicine that we've all been so desperate for as a humanity at large, maybe this person has showed up and that things are going to now change. And you got to remember the life expectancy in first century Palestine was 20 to 33 years old. I'll say that again. The life expectancy in first century Palestine was 20 to 33 years old. Disease was rampant. Access to good medical care was fleeting at best. And so if you had an ailment of any kind, there wasn't a whole lot that could be done. Surgery was archaic at best. Any sort of treatment for a chronic illness was non-existent. So I think in this time, you can start to understand why the culture at large was desperate for physical bodily healing. In fact, I imagine that a lot of people thought in this day, if my body can just be healed of its ailments, then everything else is going to be okay. What we referred to earlier in our introduction, uh, I don't think... All of us, I think some of us struggle with that too, and that can be something we put our hope in. I think times have changed. Now the life expectancy is, is, is much greater, and access to care is, is, of course, much better. It's certainly not perfect, and there's many illnesses and diseases we still can't heal. So it's not to make light of these things. It's just that given us a sense that the culture at large was desperate. But what do we see Jesus do? It's really interesting, actually, because everyone knew the, the big deal about him being a healer. I think he was probably aware that most people at this point in his ministry saw him primarily as a healer of the physical body. And it's a very public situation here. There's a lot of people in this scene. Uh, and anyone knows, like, the, 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 what you do in front of big crowds uh, early in ministry says a lot about you. And what Jesus does is as he lowers him down, it's like he doesn't even call out the obvious at first. You would think, and I think the whole crowd would have thought, the first thing Jesus said when they went through the trouble of tearing out the roof above them and lowering them down. Can you imagine what that looked like? The first thing Jesus says is not, oh my gosh, you just tore out this roof. You guys are really desperate. And this person's on a mat 
And I've been healing people before this, and now I'm just going to continue with that ministry of healing people. To everyone's surprise, what does he say? My child, your sins are forgiven. He looks right past the obvious into something far deeper and far more significant. It's like he's saying not only to the paralyzed person on the mat, but to the four friends who anxiously tried to figure out a way to get him in front of Jesus. It's like he's saying to them, I, I see, I see what's going on here. I see it. However, there's something that you all don't see. None of you in this room see it. Which is why you're all surprised that I'm saying it. That ultimately what he needs and all of you need is forgiveness of sin. This is one of the first times where Jesus in a public way, begins to talk about not just his ministry of healing the physical body. He's starting to talk about his ministry of healing our very soul, of healing our very heart, which is fundamentally what we all need first. In many ways, if Jesus had never gotten to the soul, to the heart, to the, the problem that is devastating every human being who's ever lived. It would be cruel. If Jesus had just continued his physical ministry that he started in Mark, meeting people's needs, feeding the 5,000, healing leprosy, releasing people of demons, but had never gone deeper into our very heart, into our very soul, into what actually ails us the most and has the most eternal consequences, it would have been cruel. And so I love this part of this story because all of a sudden he's shifting people's expectations, isn't he? He's saying, my ministry is part of this world. I am healing physical bodies, but my ministry goes so much deeper than that. Who I am goes so much deeper than that into your very soul. Ultimately, I think he says the same thing to those of us in this room. My guess is the room was probably similar numbers of people based on how big homes were in the first century. I think we can actually assume that the num number of people in front of Jesus that day was similar to this room today. And I think Jesus, as I was preparing this this week, I think he wants to say the same thing to each of us. We know his word is timeless. It's not like this teaching is only relevant to people in the first century. All of us in this room, myself included, have these similar things where, like the friends, they're saying, if only we can get our friend in front of Jesus— you see the desperation. They were motivated to get this guy in front of Jesus, which, by the way, is being a great friend. Jesus, I don't think, is in any way downplaying what they did at all. He's not belittling them. He cares about the fact that this person's paralyzed. 
But he cares even deeper than that. And all of us have similar things. If we can just get him healed, everything in his life is going to be fine. It's going to be great. It's going to be perfect. If we can just get him healed. And Jesus is saying, that's part of the story. That's not the whole story. If I let him go and he walks again, there's a very good chance he's just going to walk right into sin. He's going to walk right into temptation. He's going to walk right into evil. And if I don't spare him that and wake him up to those realities too, that we live in a fallen world with a lot of evil, and we need something more than just a physical healing, we need our heart and our soul to be reborn. We need our sin forgiven. We need to be made right with the God who created us. If we start to get that, then we can put the other things into their proper place. So let's look at how we can detach from the world. You see it in the story of the paralytic where he starts understanding, I think, in this story that his problem is not just being paralyzed. It goes far deeper. And he responds well to Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, and he goes out into the world. We don't know what happens to him after, but I think from the tone of the story, you can assume he got it. I think he got it, and he left there in freedom, not just physical freedom. How do we detach from the world? How do we start to look more like the paralytic? Mark 2, verse 15 Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. Do you guys like that, love that verse? Not like, but love that verse. I love that verse. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. Do you know who he's talking about? Who is this kind? People who socially are pretty powerful. People who have the religion thing kind of mastered and figured out. People who can articulate well. People who can pay their mortgage and put some into retirement people who wear nice clothes, people who say the right thing, who don't do the wrong thing? No. The many people of this kind following Jesus, being close to Jesus, are the scum of society. This is a total paradigm shift, at least for me. Because growing up, and even in my Christian life, I have not thought of it this way most of the time. I haven't. When I think of who are the people who are naturally going to be most close to Jesus and his heart, I don't think of the scum of society, like our text teaches this morning. The people who are broken. The people who life is not working out for. The people who are run down, beat up. The people who, even if they couldn't live in sin, they, they don't know how to get out of it. They're desperate. These are the people that are drawn to Jesus and that Jesus himself 
is drawn to. And so one of the things that this teaches us is to detach from the world. We learn over time to identify with these people in Mark. And that, for some of us, is a really scary thing. To see yourself as a sinner, a broken one, someone who, in and of ourselves, are not good enough to measure up to God, in and of ourselves, are full of problems, full of addictions, full of things we wish were not true of us. Yes, There's a lot about us as we're made in God's image that, of course, has incredible value, dignity, beauty. We image God no matter where we are with him, but we know that that's not the whole story. We know that there's so many things in our life that are not going the way we hoped they would. That if left to our own devices and our own instincts, we would shipwreck on the rocks of life. And I think if we're honest, maybe it's just me, this is a scary journey of learning to identify that way. You start to lose control. You start to live what feels like a vulnerable life. But these people in the story of Mark They've reached that point, and that's why I love them so much when I think about them eating with him, because their people in this day, they were the people who knew they were sinners. Now, there are people like this who are super sinners in the New Testament, and some of them don't get close to Jesus, Because actually, they're at the point where they love their sin so much that they don't actually want to be around Jesus. I'm too rich. I don't want to be around you. I'm too powerful. I don't want to be around you. I'm the governor of this region. I don't want to be around you. But not these people. These are the kind of people who are saying, I have tried everything in the world to satisfy me. I have tried everything to heal my heart. And it hasn't worked. And I'm desperate. And I'm broken. And I don't have anything to offer God. All I have is my need. There's so many stories like this in the New Testament. It's not just this one. You think about the woman who's bleeding for 12 years. And what does she do? She has no idea what she's doing. She just knows that she's tried everything in the world. And her only hope is falling on the robe of Jesus himself. I think our fear is that if we start to identify with people. See, if we read this story in our minds and we see the sinners in this story, the scum, the disreputable people, if we are looking at them in the story, 
instead of identifying with them, I can tell you, we, we can diagnose that's a problem. And here's what I mean. Whenever we read the Bible, we have an image in our mind of what we're reading. We're putting the pieces together. We're picturing ourselves often in the stories, how we would relate to that. And so many times when I've read this text, I have seen the disreputable scum as people sitting across the room. And I've been watching them. I've been looking. In fact, I've even wondered what they were like. What had they done? Why were they such a mess? Why were they so obvious to everyone around them? I think in our day, we're pretty good at hiding the fact that we are like them. We've learned over the years, especially with affluence, that we can hide pretty well behind clothes, articulation, homes, careers, whatever it is. But these people weren't able to hide that way. That's, all, that's the only difference, really, is that we know how to hide. And in their day, there weren't those privileges they could hide behind. And so I've often wondered, what did they look like? Were they run down, shabby, dirty, as I read this story this week, I continued to feel Jesus prompting me, stop looking at them as if they are on the other side of the room. No. You sit with them. Pull up a chair in their midst because that's you too, Brendan. And he doesn't say it to shame me he doesn't say that because he's embarrassed that that's actually the state of my situation if left to myself as well. No, he says it to wake me up. He says it to wake us up. Because when we get to this point that we're desperate for him and we've come to an end of the world, and we've, in a sense, wrung out everything the world can offer us for true satisfaction and true healing. See, people like Pontius Pilate, the rich young ruler, they hadn't fully wrung it out yet. They were holding on to hope that power, money, prestige would still satisfy and heal them, but not the people at the dinner table with Jesus. They had wrung it out fully and realized there's nothing left. There's nowhere else I can go. That's why I have to be with Jesus. Because when I see him, he is everything I've ever hoped for. When I'm around him in, in his presence, I sense I'm drawn to healing. I'm drawn to satisfaction in him. And it's interesting because as you read verse 16, but when the teachers of religious law who were the Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they simply asked the disciples, why does he eat with such scum? Jesus heard this. He told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I've not come to call those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. When he talks about this idea of calling, you have to ask, what's he calling these people into? Um, interestingly, 
what bothered the, the Pharisees is that Jesus was close to them. They were close to him. Proximity in Jewish law was a big deal. So if you're close to a sinner, in fact, if you went into the home of a sinner, a Gentile, you were defiled in Israel. So Jesus wasn't just with them in their home. He was actually sitting next to them. And what's bothering them so much is they are trying with duty and religion and effort and their own goodness to somehow get into the presence of God. And these people who've done nothing but sin are sitting next to the incarnate God of the universe, sitting with him, probably touching shoulders. That's the remedy that our hearts need as well. We have to start there. It's not to say that Jesus doesn't care about the things I mentioned in the introduction, about our jobs, about our health, about our bodies being healed. I believe he still does these miraculous things today. Healings, freedom, release of demons. I think all of those things still happen today. But that's not where we need to start. Where we need to start is like these disreputable scum that Mark talks about. We need to see our primary problem is the sin that's in our own hearts. That our hearts aren't working properly. They're unhealthy when we're apart from him, when we're not in relationship with him, when we're not in his presence. And the way to be set free the way to be healed is to believe what he's done for us. Because Jesus doesn't just eat with the disreputable scum, does he? No, he actually goes a lot further than that. We talked about it in our communion this morning. Jesus not only eats with people like that, but he willingly takes on that disreputable scum that affects all of our hearts he takes it on to himself. That's an amazing truth to ponder. That on the cross, he wasn't just dying a symbolic death. He wasn't just dying a death to show his love. That's certainly part of it. Or to appease Satan in somehow. No. He's taking on to himself our own sin that he's forgiving in the story of the paralytic and that all of us have built up over our lifetimes as well. He allows himself to be infected with it himself, even though he had never sinned. And as we read this morning, he took on the punishment from the wrath of God that we deserve. He died the death that we deserve. He was buried for three days, and after three days, as he promised to his disciples, he rose again from the dead, overcoming our sin, overcoming our own death. And now he stands before all of us each day, initially when we're saved, but then each day as we're following him, 
and asks the question to us, will you let me in deeper and deeper into your life? Do you guys know that C.S. Lewis story about the, the boy, he, he became a dragon, and then he becomes a boy again. And the process that Aslan goes through to help the boy become a boy again and not a dragon is he starts ripping off the scales. And he goes deeper, and he goes deeper, and he goes deeper to the point where the boy didn't think he could even live anymore because it was so painful. And he throws him in the water, symbolizing our own baptism, and he comes out a boy. I think the process of the Christian life is exactly that. We invite Jesus into our heart, not just into our circumstances, but into our heart more and more saying, Lord, while I'm in this body, this heart still has sin in it that needs to be healed, that needs to be forgiven, that needs to be dealt with. Yes, when he comes in, we're forever saved and free and our sins are always forgiven forever. But there's a process even deeper than that called sanctification where he renews our heart, heals our sin in deeper and deeper ways. And it all happens in his presence, sitting side by side with him at a table. As we're living in his presence, what ends up happening is the things of the world become less and less appealing. I want to close with a William Carey on his gravestone. And for those of you who don't know who William Carey is, he's arguably the most famous missionary um, of all time, especially besides, you know, the first century people, especially in in the the 1900s and and beyond, um, where he was in many ways a pioneer of the modern missionary movement. So in many ways, he's an unbelievable hero of the faith that most missionaries today know about and aspire to be like. Just an incredibly godly man. And lived in India for most of his life. But, but one of the, here's what's on his gravestone. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. God, that all of us have such a need for deeper and deeper healing and freedom in our lives. Um, Lord, all of us have hearts that are prone to wander, prone to sin. Um, Lord, all of us struggle with that. All of us need to recognize that you're aware of this. You want us to be aware of this, to admit it. Not so you can shame us and make us feel like dirt and worthless, but to glorify you. As William Carey realized, the more he understood his brokenness, the more beautiful and kind you became in his life. It's just a beautiful picture of someone who knew you so deeply and intimately. And God, we ask that you would um, continue to help us not look to things of the world to ultimately satisfy and heal our hearts, God, but, but we would look to your presence We would look to your healing touch in our lives. Thank you that the really broken in the world are the ones who are most drawn to you and you're most drawn to them. The ones who've given up on the world are in a great place with you. And Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.